Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Now we're going to turn our attention locally to coronavirus here in the Bay Area. And after reporting increases in cases and hospitalizations, San Francisco and Contra Costa counties announced yesterday that they will roll back some activities like indoor dining. Meanwhile, health officials across the Bay Area have issued guidelines for travel and gatherings during the upcoming holiday season. Joining us to talk about the new restrictions, recommendations for the holiday season and the latest COVID-19 data and San Francisco Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday. And Aaron Alday, welcome back to Forum. Glad to have you. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. And also glad to have with us uh, Dr. Kirsten Bobbins-Domingo. She's back with us on Forum, professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and professor of medicine at UCSF's School of Medicine. Good to have you. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Let me begin, Aaron, with you. And let's just begin by finding out what we're talking about here. Eleven counties uh, are under more restrictions. Uh, There's a lot of concern about the fact that we're moving into the holidays. Uh, There's a lot of disheartening feeling that that surges are back. And I'd like to get the picture from you. Uh, As I said, Dr. Erica Panis said 11 counties are back to more businesses closing and activity stopping. Um, It's... um, it's also, I think, safe to say at this time, no counties are moving forward. That's correct. Um, I think that that's one of the, the big takeaways. This is this was the first week, I believe, that we had not had any counties sort of move forward with further reopening. So everybody sort of, you know, where, you know, staying put for now. And, and we did have, um, as you pointed out, 11 counties in the state moving back, moving backwards. Um, and and on top of that, you know, we're seeing several counties taking sort of their own um, actions ahead of that. So, for example, Contra Costa County yesterday um, did, in fact, move back a tier, but they had already last week, um, you know, closed down and, and put in, in, in place some new restrictions in anticipation of that. San Francisco, of course, is the most notable, um, is still technically in the least restrictive yellow tier at this point, but has now reinstituted some of the the biggest restrictions in in the state um, as of yesterday with, um, you know, closing indoor dining again um, and hitting the pause on some other things. Yeah, this is the really first uh, significant California uptake uh, since the summer. And uh, let's talk about uh, with you, Dr. Bibbins Domingo, what it's based on so people get a picture of what we're talking about, because it's really mainly positivity rate and hospitalizations. Yeah, so we're seeing uh, cases uh, rise, and uh, following the rise in cases, we we see rises in hospitalizations. That's been the pattern um, in the two prior surges that we've had, and we're seeing that same pattern right now. This is what we would have expected in the winter months as people move more indoors. It is what we would have expected as we move to reopen, that the cases rise 
slightly. And um, we don't seem to be in the dire straits that many parts of the country are right now in the Midwest, most notably. But it is important that we're cautious as we continue to try to, to reopen. And I think that's the intent of these, these metrics and then the, the dialing up and dialing back as we, as we get the cases that rise. Well, it's also important to point out that we're coming up on some big holidays and colder weather and more people will be inside. And Aaron, I'd like to go back to you on this. Uh, Bay Area counties uh, have been issued guidelines for holiday travel and essentially for gatherings and the like. Uh, can you spell those out for us? Sure. So I think the main thing to keep in mind is that the, the first order is they're saying, please do not gather, do not travel. If it's at all avoidable, um, as much as possible, people should keep doing what they're doing, which is staying with their household. Um, certainly not traveling to see, to see family, to see friends. Um, so right off the gate, they're, they're saying, please don't do these things. Um, but, you know, there's a recognition that people people are probably going to, that some people may feel that this is something that they, that they really need to do or just insist upon. Um, so if, if folks are going to get together, you know, the first order of business, is I think we all know by now what types of activities are at least marginally safer. So things like keeping your, your get together outdoors is a big thing, keeping it very small. So, you know, no more than three households um, um, in a setting. Um, don't have sort of a long lingering day. If you're going to do Thanksgiving, for example, you know, make it a couple hours instead of, you know, the five, six, seven all day long affair most of us are, are used to. Um, and, you know, don't be kind of hopping around from, from one event to another. So basically trying to do kind of one small, very restrained, very kind of quiet meal, you know, with, you know, a very kind of just a, a, your close kind of intimate friends, people that, you know, are, are just a small group of people. Keep it outdoors if you can. Um, if you must be indoors, everybody should be wearing masks when they're not eating. So those kinds of things. Um, and on the travel front, if again, you are definitely going, you know, you've decided that you're going to travel, um, take all the appropriate precautions, you know, while you're traveling, wear your mask, keep your distance as much as possible, all of that. There is sort of a suggestion that you get tested before and after um, you your, your trip. So getting tested, you know, a few days before you leave, getting tested after you arrive, but just bear in mind that, you know, those are snapshots in time. So it's not necessarily a guarantee. You know, for example, if you were to travel and become exposed and infected while you traveled, you won't necessarily capture that right away on a test when you get back. Um, the other thing that people can do, especially if they are, if, if you're having travelers come from places where there is a lot of transmission going on, so parts of the country um, that are really seeing a lot of cases, um, I would say people who live in those places should should really be hunkering down now. So they should be thinking, okay, if I've maybe been going into work, if I've been, you know, seeing other people from time to time, that kind of thing, they should they should basically put themselves in sort of a quarantine situation right now because we are, of course, about two weeks from Thanksgiving um, and really kind of do that that intense sort of social distancing before they, they come and visit somebody. And these recommendations were essentially presented yesterday. There would be more expected, in fact, uh, as we uh, go through this week. Uh, they're also asking that you limit no more than three households in gatherings and no more than a couple of hours. And they've even give, given some recommendations of what to do instead of gatherings like online parties and drive-in movies and sharing recipes. Uh, I know many of you have questions and if you do, please join us. Uh, questions about coronavirus in the Bay Area, we welcome your calls. You can join us now 
Toll free, 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. Want to hear from you. We have uh, Aaron Alday with us, health reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, and Dr. Kirsten uh, Bibbins-Domingo, who is professor and chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and also professor of medicine at UCSF School of Medicine. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that Aaron has written about and that uh, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo has uh, uh, spoken out about, and that is still assessing um, how the Bay Area has dealt with the coronavirus in terms of dealing with it better than a lot of places, but also what's been the trade-off, what's been essentially um, uh, the damage uh, of a collaborative nature. Um, We'll talk about that and we'll hear from you. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're getting a Bay Area coronavirus update with Aaron Alday from the San Francisco Chronicle and Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo of UCSF School of Medicine. And we do want to hear what your questions are or your concerns. You can join us toll free. The number to call 866-733-6786. Again, if you'd like to join the program, you can do so by calling us toll free right now at 866-733-6786 or Getting in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, or mailing your questions to forum at kqed.org. Here's Aaron, who writes, I'm a parent and teacher of middle schoolers. In San Francisco, the Department of Public Health requires schools to qualify for in-person instruction before they can hold even outdoor activities like baseball or soccer. Can your guests explain the logic behind this stance? And Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, can I go to you? Yeah, I think this is um, our biggest challenge right now is to figure out how we can safely open schools. Um, I think that there there are are many um, well-intentioned guidelines um, uh, to try to figure out how to um, overall make sure that the schools and the environments are safe. Um, But I think that there's a question is, and I think many are struggling with this, is how we can push forward to the overarching goal of of allowing more in-person instruction for for our children. It's so important to do. And I think we're we're in the midst of intense conversations of how to do this well, thinking the overall strategy as well as the specific steps that we need to take along the way to get us to more in-person instruction. Well, it's a vexing and indeed a very formidable question that we're dealing with here. And uh, I want to hear what Aaron Alday has to say about schools opening. But let me go back to something I said before I went to the break, and that was uh, I was talking about collateral damage, uh, economic and secondary health consequences. You talked about this with Aaron Alday, and I wanted to get you to weigh in on this, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo. San Francisco uh, has done a great deal uh, in terms of what it's accomplished, uh, but at what cost is the big question. And that's still a question that we're assessing. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think we have to start by saying that San Francisco, the Bay Area, and frankly, California should be applauded for many of the uh, outstanding public health measures that have been taken to make sure that our, our cases, uh, our deaths have, have overall all been much lower than, than many other parts of, of the country. But I do think that, that um, as leaders, we also have to look at to say at what cost. Um, and we have to do that both to understand the impact of, um, of, of the economic shutdowns, as well as to help us plan for the future, including planning for things like opening schools, as we're talking about now. Um, it, when an entire public health system and an empire, entire clinical health system turns its attention to one area, namely fighting the pandemic, it means that other things are, uh, we don't focus as much on other things. And we know for certain that there are other health-related, public health-related measures that have gone unaddressed and, um, and really are, are one, of the, one of the challenges that we have to think through at this time. Unfortunately, the political environment has led us to have these arguments in, very, um, polar, in a very polarized context. So we're either open or shut. It's either the economy or public health. Those are not helpful, um, the, 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 the stark polarized uh, views on these things. More, I think, useful is to think about um, what are on the margins the, the costs when we make the decision to shut down in order to prevent coronavirus transmission, where are the other health, economic, and social costs, and how do we then in an environment like San Francisco, where overall we've done well, how can we use that information to actually take more calculated uh, measures forward to open schools and to, to do those other things that we have to, as a city and as a society, need to get back to more normal functioning? And Aaron, all day before uh, we go to more callers and emails, uh, I'd like to get you to update us on where we are in terms of schools opening. Uh, well, you're talking, it's, it sort of <laughs> depends a lot on where you are. Um, in San Francisco, um, you know, the elementary and middle schools are allowed to reopen once they've kind of gone through this, this application process and gotten approval. But most notably, um, San Francisco Unified is not, um, doesn't even have a timeline for reopening or for applying at this point. Um, I believe my colleague Jill Tucker um, reported last night that there is a plan on the table to reopen or to apply for reopening um, in January. So, you know, they're, they're making some progress on that front. But, you know, January is a couple months out. Um, it's just taking a long time to get there. And then, of course, um, for high schools, the, the the city just yesterday put a pause on on further high school reopenings. So we don't even really have any any timeline for that. We do have a couple of high schools that are open in um, San Francisco, but um, but not many, and most of them never had had not gotten around to it, and and are now back in that kind of indefinite uh, uh, phase. And then, like I said, it's sort of it's so scattered um, outside of that throughout you know the Bay Area and California. It just is so dependent on the local counties on what the school districts are deciding, what the individual schools are deciding, that it's um, it's frankly kind of really hard for, for everybody to keep on top of it. It's very difficult to speak of it in any uh, singular way. I understand that, but you've given us a nice outline at least. And I wonder if you could answer a question from a listener named Sarah who says, is the Bay Area considering a quarantine requirement from folks coming from states with surging rates? Um, at this time, no. Um, I think that, well, I guess I should should say that I don't know for a fact that they're not considering it. Um, it certainly is not something that they have put out there. Um, when I have asked them about travel guidance in terms of, you know, 
recommendations that they would give to people who are traveling um, to the Bay Area, especially for the holidays. Um, even that, there's been some sort of resistance in in, in recommending that people sort of quarantine, um, you know, after they get back. So I think that that's it's a pretty touchy issue. Um, it would be really there's I think enforcement is a big issue. It's really hard to enforce that kind of thing. We're such a big state. We get so much travel in and out. Um, it just would be really hard to pull off. Um, and especially on the county level, you know what you can't you can't place people at borders. You can't, um, you know, be, be checking kind of itineraries at random spots. So nobody really wants that scenario. Um, I think there's probably a good chance we'll get. Well, I guess I shouldn't say I don't know if there's a if, what the chances that we will get some sort of. Um, more encompassing advisory that people just not come here from those places. Um, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. I also think we've got to do a lot more with respect to contact tracing. Uh, that maybe even goes without saying, but uh, Dr. Bibbins Domingo, it is a listener named Catherine who tweets, why doesn't the Bay Area do a hard shutdown for two weeks before Thanksgiving or right after Thanksgiving? These half measures will not stop community transmission. We need to lock down and get numbers under control. Yeah, I, I do think that um, that your your um, your listener is is commenting on the extreme vulnerable time that we're entering into. We're entering into a time where the cooler weather drives people indoors, and that the holidays, Thanksgiving, and our winter holidays will have that. Those are the times when. Uh, when we usually gather with families, we usually gather inside. Um, and after 10 months of, of doing this, the, the drive to want to do this, to be together with our family and friends is, is probably even more intense than, than, than ever. But this is exactly the most vulnerable time because all of those indoor activities, all of the, the cooler weather is exactly what makes viral transmission more challenging. And the question is, how can we make sure that we don't get into a shutdown period. Um, shutdowns are never meant to be the strategy for managing a pandemic. They're meant to buy time to bring the transmission rates down, to bring the case rates down so that you can get other measures in place. I do think one of the things, uh, right now, I don't think that our cases are high enough that, that we are moving towards a shutdown. But I do think um, what happens over the next, uh, certainly over Thanksgiving, um, will be a measure of, of how we move into the winter holidays. There are many people who think that we should be ramping up testing at this time um, and that the combination of testing plus the, the measures that Aaron outlined so nicely at the start of the program of what you can do to make sure that you have your Thanksgiving holiday as safe as possible, that the combination of those two things will put us in a better stead as we enter into the winter months. We're fortunate that we don't, we're, we don't have the cases so high that I think we're, we're heading towards shutdown. What we wanna make sure is that we keep the cases at a moderate enough level that we're not headed towards a shutdown at the start of the year. Well, I'm looking at a couple of emails here that kind of dovetail, um, and I want to go to them. Pam writes, the focus needs to be stay put through the winter and not talk about traveling like it's an option. Another listener writes, I think these muddled rules regarding social restrictions are why we are fluctuating reopening statuses. We need clear black and white rules with consequences. Otherwise, people will continue to do what they want. And I'm struck, uh, Dr. Bibbins Domingo, by something George Rutherford, your colleague over at UCSF, uh, epidemiologist and infectious disease expert, said about the upcoming holidays. Uh, essentially, he put it in a very pithy way. He said, stay within your pods, uh, your bubbles, your households. Um, I mean, that's good advice. But here you hear you have listeners saying we need stronger rules. We need black and white type of rules. 
Right. I, I, I think that um, I think that the clearest way that we are going to avoid a shutdown, that we're going to avoid um, more drastic measures, particularly during this vulnerable time, is to do exactly what uh, what George said, which is to make sure that you don't travel, that you stay in your pods, that you have a small, intimate uh, Thanksgiving um, in a way that um, uh, that that minimizes the risk during a time that is more risky. Um, I think the question what your listeners are, 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 are getting at is, is that even if that's the best advice, how do we get people to follow the best advice? Um, and I think uh, there are people who think that black and white rules are the best ways to do that. The issue comes down to how do you enforce those? Um, and I, I think that has been a struggle in messaging throughout the pandemic is not, uh, sometimes we've had struggles with not having clear rules, but, but overall we've had more struggle with how do we get um, most people to buy into these as the best practice for themselves, their families, their loved ones. Well, and um, it's that? not always clear that that strict, you know, fines and enforcement is the best way to do that. And I think that's part of the public health challenge. Yeah, I was just going to say, when you start talking about mandating or the necessity of compliance, you run into all of these kind of uh, gridlocks and concerns that people have about their liberties being infringed upon and the like. Uh, Aaron Alday, let me go back to you with a question from a listener named Kimberly who says, has any guidance been given to assisted living in retirement communities? Older people are going to travel to visit families and then return. I've already heard of one who, despite her family's request to not come, she is. Um, I don't know. Well, I'm sure that there is guidance. I don't, I'm not super up to date on exactly what it is for the, the skilled um, nursing facilities, residential homes. I know that most of them have, um, I mean, they all have guidance in place and they're, they're generally pretty strict about that kind of thing. So if you are in a communal setting and you decide to um, travel and go see family um, and then return, they're usually pretty strict about then that, that individual, um, quarantining for, you know, about two weeks on their return. Um, in fact, if anything, a lot of these skilled nursing facilities have gone a little kind of over the top with this in the past there. I've, I've heard cases, I've even reported on this, of people being placed into a two-week quarantine after they return from a routine doctor's visit um, and, and you know, or, or doing sort of, you know, something that's, that's perfectly allowed within the city, but they are forced into quarantine when they come back. Um, I think most of these facilities have lifted those kinds of really extreme restrictions at, at this point. But I would say that if you were living in one of those facilities and had decided to travel and were then coming back, that it, it wouldn't be it, it's, it should certainly be on their mind to check in with their facility, um, and they may indeed be be looking at a, a two-week quarantine when they return. Because, I mean, that's the last thing you want. I mean, that would be just a terrible situation to have somebody go, have Thanksgiving with their family, return to a communal setting, and, and seed that setting, have the virus then spread in that setting. So that's just, we, we want to avoid that really at all costs. And let me bring a caller on. Gabe joins us. Gabe, you're on the air. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so I have a question on obviously what's on everyone's mind is the vaccine and the recent news about its effectiveness, the high 90 percent. And I just wanted to hear uh, what your guys' thoughts are on that. And uh, especially you, Dr. Rodriguez, how much confidence should this give us and how do you think this will and should influence decisions on everything we've been talking about, like reopenings and that sort of thing? Thank you for that question, Gabe. Let me go to you, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo, Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo. 
Yes. Um, yeah. So um, I think many of us were really, uh, really pleased to see um, uh, to hear the press release about, from Pfizer and the and the results of this of this uh, vaccine study. I think um, so. I, I think that is all good news. The cautions, of course, are we haven't yet seen the results. We'd love to see them. Um, uh, and there is a big uh, gap between seeing the results, getting the FDA approval and then getting vaccine vaccines distributed um, to the, the way they're going. They're go they need to be to get to um, all of the people uh, in order to actually be at a point where we actually say, well, we don't we no longer need masks and other social distancing because everyone has enough immunity because of a vaccination. We're still a long way off from that eventuality, but we're at the first step, which is at least one now highly effective vaccine if the data uh, holds out. Um, we have several vaccines that are in trials. And um, I think that that um, the fact that we have one is great. If we have more than one, that will also be good in terms of, um, of our options for distributing. Some of the things that, that people are going to watch for is, um, is to understand uh, which types of groups the vaccine is effective in. Is it effective in older people as well as younger people, people with other chronic conditions? That will be one of the things people look at when they look at the data. This is a vaccine that needs to be kept at very low temperatures, which will be a challenge for its widespread distribution. That's some of the things that people are going to look at because other of the vaccines won't have that requirement. We will wanna think about the overall effectiveness of this vaccine versus other vaccines. This is one that has two doses. Some of the others have one dose. So that will be another consideration. But I think what we have to all be optimistic because in an extraordinarily short period of time, um, we've had extraordinary successes in terms of the science of developing effective vaccines that give us hope that as we get through next year, um, we will be at a point where we can really start to get back to normal. But this is not going to happen quickly. That's the main caution at this point. That's a very important caution. And I'd like you to respond to a question from a listener named Abigail, if you could, Dr. Bibbins-Domingo. She wants to know if you can discuss how safely to share food at small gatherings. Uh, should it be done, uh, she wants to know, at all? And if so, can you provide some guidance as to how it can be done safely? Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't think sharing food is 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 what you want to be doing. Sort of the buffets or uh, things like that is not where where we want to be. I think that um, that having food and people with their own utensils and uh, um, making their own plates is exactly what um, the best way to to minimize this. Um, we are not at a point where where we worry as much about. Um, the virus sitting on inanimate objects. Um, uh, but sharing food is a particularly vulnerable time because you have your masks off and is it another way we think about transmission. So um, I would say the, the large gatherings with buffets absolutely out, the more distanced uh, dinner party with a small number of people, ideally the people you are normally with, um, uh, where everyone has their own utensils and their own plates, that's exactly how you wanna be going. And let me, uh, as we come to the end of the program here, go back to you, Aaron, all day. You've been covering this uh, so thoroughly and so well, and kudos to you uh, on that score. Uh, and we've done very well in San Francisco, but we still have tripled the rate from a month ago. Still low in death rates uh, by the count of other major cities. But uh, like Bob Wachter says, uh, we have the danger of complacency to think about. I'm just wondering what you can say other than vaccines that can be helpful here, because people can be very dispirited in the light of all these surges in the winter ahead. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and, you know, I feel that too. I think we all, we all are in that place. I think one thing, you know, people should feel really good about is, is, and this, we're told this repeatedly, but it's true, is that we know how to keep this thing sort of contained on an individual level. We know that wearing the face coverings, we know that the social distancing, um, we know that sort of like all of these kind of basic behaviors can actually do a lot to keep disease transmission now. And so as, as much as it's concerning and frustrating and alarming to see these numbers kind of creeping up again in the Bay Area, um, and it's horrible to see what's happening in the rest of the country, um, you know, we've been through this before. We know that if we kind of behave ourselves, if we cooperate with these basic public health policies, that we can do this. And we also know that we can do this. Um, it is something that's, that's within us. I'd like to end on that can-do note. Thank you, Aaron Alday. Thank you, Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo. And thank you, our listeners. And I'll say it again as we conclude here, particularly talking about coronavirus, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.